Nice to see you. This is BungaCast, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. And uh, are you ready to be angry? Are you ang- ready to be really pissed off? Because this is an episode of Alpha Bonus Bonus where we respond to your questions and criticisms. And we're going to start, of course, with the Gaza war, Israel and Palestine and so on. Because that way everyone can get really angry right at the start and just maybe turn this episode off, you know, three minutes in. Or, you know, you can also just spend the next hour or so of this episode being angry and seething, even at things that have nothing related are not related to Israel and Palestine. So um, that's all to look forward to. Uh, George, Phil, how are we doing? Looking forward to, to a- answering some angry people. Yeah, always. It's, always, it's always good when you uh, just get shouted at on the internet and why told why you're... Yeah, why else did you podcasting except to get shouted at? That's what we're why in you this wrong? for. Why are you stupid? I mean, you know, we have to have answers to these questions. Not only just, wrong and stupid, but like reactionary and, you know, kind of evil to boot. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but the on the plus side, if you want to see what this looks like, responses to these angry questions you can see us on video i mean we're, we're trying this out we're seeing how this goes um but we're we're recording the video of this as well which will be up on uh, on youtube and i suppose on patreon as well um obviously if the video somehow doesn't work and you're looking forward and you can't see it you know something's gone wrong <laughs> so there we go um, presumably just you would just out. edit that bit out where you said yeah, there would be video quite, if there isn't it, but... it depends about how yeah, lazy i get about editing um, yeah the final fair. points Anyway, so let's actually get cracking. We have a bumper crop of comments. Um, we, apologies if you've been looking forward to an alpha bonus bonus for a long time. Um, we've been a little bit remiss. It's been quite a couple of months. Kind of missed one out along the way during the uh, the northern summer. Um, I think well, several of us were away. So um, we're doing a big one now. Apologies already in advance. If we don't deal with your comment. We've selected ones which are maybe more representative or present an interesting. Uh, bring some interesting information, actually, because many of them, you know, you guys are listening in wherever you are and you go, actually, in my country, it's such and such. So that's all um, stuff we've tried to highlight and as well to, you know, obviously not shy away from ones where you um, call us scoundrels, arseholes, degenerates, genocidaires, whatever else. Uh, anyway, so let's get let's get cracking. Uh, the first one where well, we're going to start with Israel and Palestine, as I said, uh, we're going to deal with the two episodes we've done relatively recently on those first and then we're going to move through uh, from the most recent episode all the way to to the furthest away. So the first one was, uh, well, this was for 369, Information War with Jacob Siegel. Uh, Carson H. says, I can only assume that this will be one of those episodes where, in a desperate attempt to distance themselves from the real Western ruling elite, that is to say, blue-haired college students, Starbucks employees, people with laptops, etc., The boys feel the need to contort themselves into the one truly radical position on Israel-Palestine, coincidentally held by 90-90% of elected officials throughout the global north. That Israeli apartheid is fucking epic, and those Muslims just hate us for our freedom. Um, What I like about that one is that he's got that in presumably before listening to the episode, which I think is I would encourage everyone else to do as well. Just get get your feelings out first, 
and then the information. I think this is like we were talking about before recording, George, in terms of process of writing and whatever. Write all the stuff and then do the research, right? So just write yeah. what you write what you feel, and then and then read check whether you're right or not. Yeah, I mean that is my preferred writing uh, technique. I'm I'm only partly joking. You'd have to know you have to know what's true. And then do the research afterwards. If you do the research before, you just have too many ideas, too many facts. It's too hard. So um, that, I'm not saying that's what Carson H uh, does, or that's not necessarily what I do every time, but maybe sometimes I would do that. Phil, uh, Phil, you're muted. High professionalism here from Phil. I thought I wasn't. There you go. I uh, just a quick response to Carson H. Um, I guess since he um, posted that, uh, what's striking about the conflict is that you have very open divisions in ruling institutions, particularly in the US, which have never been um, so openly expressed before. Uh, you know, you had the congressional staffers walking out, as well as the um, stances struck by some members of the squad. Um, apparently kind of uproar and division within the um, Secretary of State's office of the U.S. Diplomatic Service. So it's only um, only to say that it's it would be wrong to assume pro-Israeli uniformity across ruling institutions, let alone in the wider kind of public in Western societies. Yeah, and we're going to come on to that point a little bit in more depth in a second because it's um, it runs through a lot of the comments about Indeed, whether you should, you know, support Palestine or support Israel in relation to what governments are doing or not, and indeed trying to qualify and characterize what Western governments are actually doing. Uh, so to move on, a, a lot of people were outraged by Jacob Siegel's claim that the US was supporting Iran, not just opening up to Iran, but trying to set up Iran as a counterweight to Israel and Saudi Arabia in the region, um, and maybe some angry for me. Uh, me not having called him out on it. Uh, so, for example, Aaron says, U.S. supports Iranian power to balance the region is the most wrong-headed assessment I've ever heard. Um, and Lee Jones, a past guest, friend of the podcast, says, it was very hard to take Jacob seriously amid truly outlandish claims. For example, the U.S. strategy is to build up Iran as a counterweight to Israel and Saudi Arabia. The U.S. killed 20 million people in Mosul. That, that, I think he just misspoke um, in that case. The entire U.S. ruling class is in bed with China, etc. Rather than challenging this nonsense, Alex was drawn into his crankism, stating that the U.S. was more totalitarian than the fascist states of the 20th century. The underlying problem here was a deeply conspiratorial worldview, which doesn't account for the level of disorder and elite disarray in today's world. Um, I mean, I wasn't on this. On there wasn't on this episode, Alex, but I do think you know you are frequently drawn into crankism. So there is a point being made here. Which you've is been, you've right. been spending too much time with uh, with cranks. Um, naming yeah, like, no names, like George and Phil. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> I just said uh, naming no names. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I'm yeah. gonna start to make me no a conspiracy theorist when people yeah. are doxing me uh, when I'm uh, just having a conversation. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's contagious, isn't it, crankism? But welcome to the to the the crank majority, perhaps. Now, maybe I should have called Jacob out on or challenged him on on some of those claims. I, I have to say the 10 million dead in Mosul I, just passed me by. I, I probably, he meant 10,000 and I probably heard 10,000 and then we just kind of went on. Um, but that's kind of the, the nature of conversation. Sometimes you give each other the benefit of the doubt. Um, I, 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 I take the point I think about Jacob. I mean, I, I can't answer them, um, you know, and I'm not going to presume to answer them in his place. 
as to Lee's point, which she makes, I think, later on as well in relation to something else about um, contemporary states being mo more totalitarian, maybe, you know, the missing the quotation marks, which now if you're watching on video, you can see me doing them like little bunny ears. Uh, the question, I think, or what I was trying to draw attention to is that not that states have an an ambition to control you at the, the level that the Soviet Union did, for example, or to mold people or something like that, more just that the level at the of kind of infrastructural power that states have today is much greater than they did in the first half of the 20th century, for example. Um, and so the capacity, at least, um, should they want to, to kind of dominate and control people, I think is much greater than, than it was in those times, even if the ambition was was there. As another point, I don't really, I mean, I don't remember saying, using the term totalitarian. I think it's not a term that necessarily holds much water. I try to avoid using it personally. I don't think there's much basis to um, the idea of totalitarianism. And I also because it was created as a means of saying, hey, Nazis and, and Stalin and, and, you know, communists, they're the same thing. So I'm kind of skeptical of the idea of totalitarianism. Yeah, I mean, we we talked about this a little bit um, when we talked about John Gray, which we're obviously going to get onto that episode later. But yeah, there is a, there is a question here, like how do you square this seeming contradiction or paradox that states maybe have more of the technological tools to be totalitarian or authoritarian, but they're missing some of the political prerequisites. So you end up with, I would say, a fairly paradoxical and not totalitarian or authoritarian without qualification situation today but yeah like i said maybe we can talk about that a bit more when we get to john gray and his new leviathan's new mm -hmm. leviathan's thesis so, so one of the um issues which we raised in the episode with jacob siegel but also um especially at the beginning of the episode with alex gurovich which we're going to come on to in a second was why trying to understand why the israel-palestine conflict draws so so much energy um you know, around the rest of the world. And, you know, some people have um, agreed with us as to questioning why that is and uh, put forward some arguments as to why, uh, you know, additional arguments as to why, while others have been kind of horrified by us asking the question because it's like, well, obviously it's the site of these, you know, major three major Abrahamic religions. It's supported by the US and Western powers. Therefore, obviously loads of people around the West are going to be interested in Israel, Palestine. Um, I take that point, but um, I still think it's kind of worth discussing the question. And uh, Richard R., for one, puts forward one idea, which is that uh, the more I think about it, the more it seems that the effective hyper-real relationship that Westerners have had to the conflict, both pro-Israeli and also pro-Palestine, uh, seems to be almost an early form of hyper-politics. Certainly student politics around BDS uh, that I have seen in the U.S. often shows people going absolutely apoplectic, people unable to take stands besides extremely hardline ones. And in some ways, the further away the person is from the reality on the ground, the more the extreme, the more extreme the affect seems to be. Um, adding to this sort of discussion, Ron Halbrun says uh, one of the reasons for the disconnect between the reality in Israel and the international discussion surrounding it is that the discussions around Israel tend to prioritize foreign affairs over domestic ones. Put it bluntly, Americans and Europeans often show little interest in or lack of knowledge about the internal dynamics within Israel. However, these factors are crucial. Israel is a complex and multifaceted place, and it shouldn't be reduced solely to the conflict of the Palestinians. The most recent conflagration, for instance, dovetails 
with a protracted constitutional and political crisis, which has at times led to civil unrest. Everyone seemed to have forgotten about that all of a sudden. Additionally, the Arab society within Israel has been suffering from an extremely violent crime epidemic. So Israel, in other words, is collapsing from within. Understanding this background is essential. I mean, I would, I think both of these comments are really on, you know, one point, um, both with respect to Richard R's point about the hyper-real character of Israel-Palestine, hyper-real politics being very early um, with respect to people latching onto the conflict from the outside. But it also loops into the discussion that we had with um, our second guest, Alex Gorovich, about the performative character of the violence, the necessarily performative character of violence in the conflict, because it's detached from any meaningful or transformative political program. And so it necessarily gives it that um, hyper-real character, I think. Um, and then Ran Halbrin makes a really, you know, it's an excellent point because it underscores the point about the lack of politics. Um, you know, the, I mean, the constitutional crisis in Israel, without going into the details, but over greater, um, greater kind of uh, governmental control over the judiciary, I mean, it was extraordinarily intense and bitter. People um, saying they were refusing to serve, um, elite, entire elite units refusing to involve themselves with the military and protested what they saw as a power grab against the judiciary, the deep divisions between Ashkenazi and Mizrahi Jews within Israel in the context of... Um, Ben, Benjamin Netanyahu's government being reliant on orthodox, ultra-Orthodox Jewish parties who refuse and don't wish to serve in the Israeli military, which you think would be a very basic point about um, providing you know, for the security of the Israeli state, given the hostility, military um, threats to Israel and so on. And it's extraordinary that um, you know, how the Hamas attack has effectively allowed Israel to kind of get through that constitutional crisis and for all of these other divisions which were becoming coming to the surface to be immediately suppressed. And again, I think that speaks to the lack of any real um, strategic or strategic intelligence or political vision behind the attacks themselves. Um, so I think Gran Halbrun makes a very important point about the background to the conflict needing to be borne in mind that Israel has deep political and social fissures within itself um, that speak to deep problems of the Israeli state independent of its uh, relationship with people in Gaza or the West Bank. Well, and I mean, just to add a little thing to that, it seems to me that in the current war, and not just in the current war, but in the face-off between the Israelis and the Palestinians, the Israelis are the ones who have more room for maneuver, and not the Israelis as like a coherent, solid block, but as an agent, you know, within Israeli society, there seems to be, I'm sure Israeli listeners will criticize me and say that you're wrong about this. But ultimately, there seems to be more room to pivot, um, or to do something different in the conflict to create a new reality on the ground by Israel than what the Palestinians can do, whose room for maneuver is extremely limited. Um, to the, I think, you know, um, there's not very much, there's not many cards that the Palestinians can play now, um, which is rather different to the situation 30 years ago. Um, so to come on to the uh, episode with Alex Gurevich, this was one of the most, if not the most popular episode of ours of all time. So I can guarantee that it wasn't just hate listens either. 
So uh, clearly the even-handed, realistic, and principled take expressed on this episode, uh, your criticisms notwithstanding, certainly has its fans. Um, and I, I think it did provide, and what Alex Gurvich brought was a clarity, which has been lacking to a lot of the discussion. Um, just to continue with the point that Ral Han, excuse me, Ran Heilbrunn makes um, here is that he proposes a solution as to why Israel and Palestine provide such focus today, which is that after the cultural turn of the late 20th century, the left found itself in a difficult situation. First, the issues that it was now concerned with are not as serious and profound as the transformation of society's economic structure. And secondly, that these new cultural struggles don't evoke the same level of political urgency and commitment because society was anyway progressing in terms of racial, sexual, and gender equality. So against this background, ironically, the cultural left developed a thirst for non-cultural leftism. Israel-Palestine provides exactly that. Unlike identity topics, the situation in Israel-Palestine was deteriorating, and the left doesn't have to fabricate an oppressive authority structure to position itself against in the way that, you know, the cultural left talks about white supremacy or the patriarchy um, decades on from those actually being relevant factors. With Israel and Palestine, you could say, hey, this thing is really happening. Look how oppressive and, and, and um, you know, repressive Israel is. So in that sense, it's not zombie politics. It's the last real grievance that the cultural left can attach itself to after its betrayal of the working class. I think that's um, quite right. Um, I know some people, listeners might be like, well, this is more psychologizing of the left. But no, I think that I don't think it's psychologizing at all. No, I think it follows the logic of of left wing politics in a particular context. And I would add to it, I think the um, part of the appeal of standing with the Palestinians, and it's worth remembering that wasn't always the case on the left. You know, kind of um, in the first quarter, uh, well, or the first fifteen to twenty years of Israel's existence, the left tended to side with Israel because they saw it as a bridgehead of um, you know socialist democracy with all the kibbutzes and the Labour Party. Um, in charge in Israel under David Ben-Gurion and so on, they were seen as a bridgehead against the reactionary Arab dictatorships. And that only really changed, I think, after the 1967 war. Um, so it's, um, you know, it shouldn't be taken for granted, the current kind of configuration and attitudes. But irrespective of that, I think part of the reason that the left now, kind of the spontaneous affinity with the Palestinians is so strong is also because... Um, they are, you know, it's similar to the kind of the leftist um, support for, say, indigenous tribes in the Amazon um, or victims of humanitarian oppression that demand kind of NATO or United Nations intervention. It's because, precisely because of their powerlessness, precisely because of their victimization, precisely because they don't have um, representative, you know, state, kind of uh, independent state that's able to represent them and makes it easier to speak on their behalf from outside. So I think all of those elements are also need to be factored in. Into, and, and it's a lost, and it's a kind of a, a lost cause, or at least, you know, even in the most definitely. optimistic view, the, it's not looking great for the Palestinians, right? And, right. and, and you can bemoan that and say, that's a tragic situation, which is what I had said on that episode. Um, but, you know, the fact remains, it's not exactly something yes. which you can get your hook into and say, look, this is going to lead to the liberation of these people in the coming years. There's a real possibility to transform the world order through this victory. I mean, it not yeah, really. Which was, the, which was the original basis yeah. of support for the Palestinians. The, the idea was that this dispossessed people 
um, that their revolt would transform the geopolitics of the entire Middle East and overthrow an imperialist order within, you know, within that region, not least because they were also fighting the reactionary Arab monarchies um, so that they were the leading force of, um, of secular Arab nationalism. And like you say, Alex, there is, you know, the, the, the Palestinians are in no the fight. The Palestinians fighting for themselves are in no position to transform the entire political order in the Middle East anymore, and that is, I think, precisely what makes them so irresistible, um, and why it becomes effectively the the left. Um, the left has failed to disentangle its support for the Palestinians from the liberal support for the Palestinians as victims of human rights oppression. And I, I mean, we'll talk about this more. But anyway, it's only to say I think um, Rand's point is uh, very good, and you know, there's more detail to be added to it. Mm, just a kind of maybe a bit of a sideways point, but it, it, the when you were talking about like the inability, I guess, of the Palestinians to represent themselves, Phil, it made me think of. I, I might be, I might get this wrong, but I'll, I'll, I'll go out out there on a on a limb. I think in in Orientalism, Edward Said's like the epigram of that is they cannot represent themselves they have to be represented i.e and he means it in a cultural way like you know the 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 west is coming up with cultural representations of of the east of the orient because the orient can't doesn't have the cultural power to to represent itself in in western contexts but actually i wonder if it's also true in a kind of political representation way as well like if there isn't if hamas is the representative of the Palestinian people, which I think not everyone would agree that is the case, um, then there is a bit of a gap there. And maybe that's where the Western left comes in to kind of politically represent the Palestinian people who are, you know, who are only partially, if at all, represented by Hamas. Anyway, just, you know, I hadn't thought of it that way around before. So I was just, uh, and that might no, be wrong. No, it's a good point. But Edward Said himself takes it from the 18th Brumaire, right? He does indeed. Um, yeah. So the point, I mean, the point being about the, precisely the peasants' social structure means that they struggle to articulate their own collective interests, which lends itself to being expressed by on their behalf, in this case by the Bonapartist dictatorship in mid-19th century France. And a similar case could be made with the Palestinians since their defeat. Um, and given the structure and um, the oppression, you know, and everything that is suffered by the Palestinians um, in Gaza and the Western Bank, then they have to be, they can't represent themselves, they have to be represented. And that's the gap, like you say, yeah. where the NGOs and the Western solidarity movement step well, in. It's the same for the environment. It's the same for, for children. This is where NGOs step in because, you know, cannot be cannot speak, so you have to speak on behalf of. Anyway. That's a bit of a sideways point, but so, um, did make me so, think. Well, continuing on the question of left-wing motivation for, um, well, for being involved in the conflict. That's on a that's kind of a banal way to phrase it. But um, basically, Andrew Manford says, even if you take the contentious view that there are no sides to take, the governments we live under, the UK in my case, do take a side. It's therefore incumbent on leftists to oppose the imperialism of their own government. Uh, MIC and media, um, military industrial complex, that is. <laughs> it took me a second. Um, Kenneth Smith says, I think part of why the conflict seems to play an outsized role in discourse is because the extreme level of hypocrisy involved and America's massive involvement with it. But it's kind of funny to hear people who come back constantly to Brexit and lockdown complaining about an outsized importance with regard to Israel and Palestine. Uh, James Foley adds, yet on this particular topic, they, that is to say, Bungacast, declared unconditional support for Ursula Vander Leiden and the unelected commission. 
Um, I don't know if we want to, I think maybe we, this is a good point to deal with this question because th their basic argument is all Western powers are lined up behind Israel. Therefore, there's, that's why you oppose them, right? Um, and, and, it, and it kind of not has anything to do with even necessarily with supporting Palestinian liberation, but more opposing Western imperialism. So since um, since Kenneth Smith uh, mentioned Brexit and lockdown, this uh, no, I was, I was going to say going to go on and talk oh, for ten no, minutes about no, no. about those. No, I mean that's 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 unfair, Kenneth. I mean you've you've got to know at this point what what we're what we're um, interested in talking about. No, I mean yeah, there are <laughs> I think there are a lot of um, critical comments on this episode, and these are uh, this is almost the, the kind of the uh, amuse bouche before the uh, the several course. Um, <clears throat> shit sandwiches of uh negative comments if that makes sense which maybe it doesn't well i mean so there'll be more but i mean i think i mean james foley is off the mark um because we certainly didn't ursula ursula von der leyen's um position is full-throated support um for israel or at least it has been it was at the time that we were recording um and it's worth i mean you know we didn't we never once did we suggest that we said and we agreed with our guest alex who made the claim that there was no side to take because the the violence of either side was not in any way going to lead to any kind of um po meaningful political settlement um and that was the point that means there is no side to take in a war. If you want to take a, sides in a war, you have to have a sense of or support the purpose of a particular use of violence to a particular end. And because we don't see that there's any goal or any kind of political vision, either in the um, terrorism of Hamas or in the violence being wreaked by um, Israel on the civilian population in Gaza. Um, so we didn't take, uh, we didn't um, even kind of, I mean, it's far off the mark, even allowing yeah. for um, jokiness and satire. It was nowhere close to Ursula von der Leyen. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It, it, ultimately, I don't know what the, some of these criticisms are driving at, because it, is it simply that we should express sympathy for the Palestinians and call for immediate ceasefire? Perhaps, right? And sure, but that's kind of cheap insofar as that is freely given, right? And it and it's and it's a fairly reasonable, um, you know, humanitarian point. I'm in favor of a ceasefire now. Um, I think what Israel is doing is horrific, and I think it's even made more horrific because of the point that Phil has just made, which is that even Israel's violence isn't going to lead to a kind of new political settlement, um, not least because Israel doesn't want to take responsibility for the Palestinians. So it's not they're not going to incorporate Palestinian lands and make Palestinians kind of citizens or even kind of, um, you know, subalterns within their country, which then the Palestinians could fight for civil rights within it. That isn't going to that, you know, that isn't immediately on the cards either. So I'm not exactly sure what the criticisms are driving at other than you should have full throated support for Palestinians. In which case, this means support support for what Hamas is doing. I, you know, it, trying to weave a a, a a a path between those and say I fully support the Palestinians, not just as humanitarian victims, but as political subjects in their quest for uh, a national homeland. Okay, who's doing that and how is that happening? What organ? If you maybe think about it this way, if you are at the head of a political organization of a mass membership political organization, perhaps like a Marxist party. Are you going in the United States, let's say, or in Britain, are you going to channel funds towards 
the Palestinians and to whom are you sending those funds, right, in solidarity? I think that's a good, you know, it, it sounds like um, kind of armchair general stuff, but it's like, okay, that actually prompts the question of, of, of who are you showing solidarity with practically if you actually have to put your money where your mouth is? And it's not entirely clear um, where that would go. So I guess that would be aid, right? I mean, I think that's the the probably the the model that's being implicitly suggested is not one of political support for specific agents, but of aid for Palestinians in general, which is a kind of um, a different approach. And I think so. I think I think your question is valid. Um, in fact, Alex, and I don't know what the I don't know if there's an easy answer to that that people would would give actually. So Sarah, um, Sarah Sug, Sarah SG, characterizes our line as Hamas is obviously worse than Israel because Israel is a liberal democracy, in quotes, scare quotes. Hamas is engaged in a religious holy war, where actually Israel is the one that's built on religious extremism and naked apartheid. It seems like you're incapable of recognizing religious extremism only when it's attached to Islam. Um, again, I mean, it's simply untrue. So I put it to Alex our guest, Alex Gorovich, I put to him that, you know, that perhaps one difference would be the fact that Israel is a liberal democratic state, not to make excuses for the Israeli violence, but to put to him the counterpoint that constantly recurs in discussions, which is the fact of Israel's existence as a liberal democratic state. What difference does it make to the situation? And Alex very clearly replied that it doesn't make Israel's kind of political structure doesn't make a difference to the character of the violence in this conflict. So, the use of the word liberal democracy wasn't to um wasn't to excuse um wasn't to excuse uh, israel in this um instance and alex gorovich himself made the case against the idea of apartheid um in this instance as well because apartheid was based on hyper exploitation of um black African labor. And that's simply not the case in the case of the West Bank and Gaza. Quite the opposite. Israel has made significant efforts to disentangle themselves from being reliant on Palestinian labor to the point that they were importing, you know, Nepalese and Filipino laborers who were also kidnapped as hostages by Hamas um, from the kibbutz, kibbutzim that they attacked in South Israel. So, so I mean, in response to Sarah's point, um, you know, these the point is addressed about liberal democracy in the discussion, as is the point about apartheid. I mean, just one thing. I, I mean, to really put this in class terms, and I'm not informed enough, um, so I'm just going to kind of put this more as a question. But it seems to me that what one of the tragedies of the Palestinians, and particularly those in Gaza, is that they're a surplus population. I don't; they're not economically necessary to the Israelis or really to anyone else. And their own uh, like level of economic development and production is very limited, um, in part because of Israel's limitation of that, but also because they're not even able to be exploited. You know, it's like that tragedy, like being exploited is, is terrible, but even worse is to not be their exploited. Aid, but their aid, yeah, their aid dependent, essentially. Right. And that but, is also an important part of the politics of the conflict. But I think that's kind of maybe an interesting way to think about it. What does it mean then to be a completely surplus population? And that makes them in some ways humanitarian victims in a, in a, I mean, I want to say that in a, in a sense that you really say, yeah, well, I mean, that is, you know, that's, that's, that's terrible. That makes them um, very killable because they, they have no leverage. Right. I want to, um, I suppose the, the main thing I think that's important to put across is, you know, there are, there are bad, many bad things in this world that are not apartheid. Yeah. You know, and the Israeli treatment of the Palestinians even prior 
to the war in Gaza was one of those many bad things that is not apartheid. Um, there's this kind of uh, this odd Gresham's law in leftist critique where everything devolves into being discussed in terms of apartheid or discussed in terms of genocide. And that, I think, doesn't in any way in, you know, has no meaningful, gives you no meaningful political grip on what is at stake in the conflict or how to understand it. So anyway, I mean, yeah, I'll, leave, I'll leave my response yeah. to Sarah there. No, I think, I think there's a, there is a kind of a more general point about like the use of terms which are clearly very morally loaded or historically specific, like pogrom. Like why there's a good should link to this in the show notes good piece by pete ramsey why you know why was october 7th not a pogrom because it doesn't have any of the the context and any of the kind of historical historically specific markers of a pogrom it's not to say that because it's not a pogrom therefore it's good as it's you know there are many bad things in the world that are not pogroms or apartheid and i think maybe that kind of language has died down a little bit but that was clearly you know part of the initial response anyway i guess we're kind of you know there's no point um you know smashing all these these straw men that i've just uh just created here but i think it's worth it's worth saying that so now you know nevertheless lots of people thought this was one of our worst ever episodes um as well as so it's really split opinion um matt holland's head um has posted several comments uh, in criticism of us. One is that Israel is fully integrated into Western economies. For example, there's an Israel-based arms company with its headquarters just a mile from my home in the hub of Britain's military tech sector. I use Israeli software at work and Western multinationals operate in Israel. If we are part of imbricated imbricated economies, so are Israeli and Western civil societies. Many organizations are tightly linked in many ways, none of which is the case for Sudan, for example, um, which is an example that Phil had raised as a potential parallel to, to Palestine. You know, what you care about Palestine, why don't you care about Sudan? Well, the reason is, is that Israel is tightly implicated in, in you know, Western economic and social networks. If Israel is part of our objective political, economic and social lives, continues Matt, why would our relations to its conflict not warrant political and economic explanations rather than COD psychology? Um, maybe we'll come on to that when we discuss another comment um, in just a second about you know the anti-imperialist stance with regard to Israel and Palestine. Um, one point about Germany: um, SP says may be um, excuse me maybe there was a time when the German left was expressing severe disapproval of Israeli or Serbian atrocities as a way to expiate their past. But if you've lived through the past 15 to 20 years and observed anything, you have to be willfully ignorant to miss that the displacement of World War II guilt doesn't just work by leveling excessive criticism of Israel. On the contrary, it also works by performatively cracking down on anti-Zionist or pro-Palestine protests. Uh, and this is the current form it is taking. Um, yeah, in, indeed. I mean, that's been very uh, evident can comment on that in just a second. I want to come to an extended uh, critique of us by James Foley, which will be the last one we raise on Israel and Palestine. So if you're looking forward to getting past this, uh, there's more to come in just a second, uh, or rather a new stuff not related to Israel and Palestine to come. Uh, James Foley says, my objection, as I've stated a few times, is at framing protest 
uh, at Israeli policy and action through the prism of campus anti-Semitism and Islamo-Gauchisme uh, based on impressionistic takes that reflect irritation with the subcultural milieu rather than the realities of power. Unless you unseriously want to crow about one or two idiots you found on Twitter, you can't sustain the notion of anti-Semitism as a widespread phenomenon on the left without resorting to an identity poll, centering voices, microaggressions, framing where victimized groups or spokespeople thereof have unlimited power to determine offensiveness. Um, what is actually hegemonic is support for Israel. Culturally, this is reflected in research councils, elite artistic venues and television, canceling pro-Palestinian events, research, etc. Politically, uh, there's a cross-party consensus in most countries behind Israel militarily. It doesn't even need stating. Saying that Palestinians must overthrow Hamas first, come now, that's woeful, not politics. What do we expect of them? They openly protest, they get shot. They do elections, elections get cancelled. They appeal to the authorities, the old secular left of the PLO, for example, um, but they are obese, corrupt in the pocket of the occupiers. They appeal for international attention politically via BDS campaigning, well, blowhards ranging from spiked to the Wall Street Journal and The Guardian call them anti-Semites with cross-party institutional support because, I repeat, pro-Israeli politics is hegemonic across the board in terms of real power. Regarding yourselves, I find this turn sad because much of the rest of your analysis is convincing. Take the notion of the left as culturally hegemonic, the core components of the cultural elite, etc. The way you're applying that to Palestine is so enormously empirically false that one starts to wonder about the whole edifice. By contrast, the odierism here, the sort of, oh, it's a tragic situation, etc., isn't really distinguishable from Starmer, Sanders, the squad, Joe Biden, Bush, Blair, or frankly, anyone in the old bloc. It's the dominant view and carries no risk, saving a few unsubscribes. Right. Um, where to start with this? Uh, do you guys want to let jump me, in? Let me um, talk to Matt's point, first of all. So he talks about um, Israel's integration into Western economies, unlike Sudan, as the, you know, um, as a reason for, um, you know, kind of a justified political response. First of all, I wouldn't be so quick to, you know, kind of um, suggest that Sudan is somehow completely peripheral to, you know, the economy of the world, or as if things that happen in Sudan, as if, you know, Sudan isn't integrated into the global economy through oil exports and you know, what have you, is, you know, which is to say that I don't think you infer your political positions from examining, you know, kind of uh, trade flows and um, degree, I don't know, like, uh, you know, volume and quality of exports or something that doesn't seem to me kind of the way, you know, you would lead to a political position. So anyway, I mean, I know what Matt is getting at, I think, is the idea that we have that Israel is so is... Um, allied with and to some degree intertwined with um, British society and the state. And that might be true, but I don't think that's the reason why people are motivated to, um, you know, why people are so, feel so enormously affected by the conflict, right? So he's talking about why we should respond perhaps, but not why we do actually respond in the way that we do with respect to Palestinian solidarity. And the response to Palestinian, you know, the response to um, what's happening in Gaza is very clearly motivated by the suffering of Palestinians, um, their powerlessness, their helplessness, um, before being, you know, kind of uh, relentlessly bombed, you know, essentially a defenseless civilian population and being explicitly terrorized and um, ground into the dust. So that's why people march, you know, so... 
and that, and then if they march for that reason, it's legitimate to ask why people don't feel similarly um, engaged with other long-running, more violent conflicts in which you have equivalent levels of suffering, which is the Sudan comparison. So I, I do think Matt's be, making a, a should argument. He's making the argument that you should, that you must. Yeah, but we, were, but we, no, but we were asking why. That's my point. In the discussion with Alex Gorovich, we were trying to approach the question, why do people feel the way they do? And so the, exa- the comparison with Sudan, I'm trying to justify the point about the comparison with Sudan, right? On the, now, to take, I mean, to answer Matt's other point, which is the should point, right? It doesn't seem to me that the... You know, it seems to beg the question as to what is what has to be answered is the political nature of the relationship between Western states and Israel, right? Which isn't something which is measured by you know trade flows and exports, volume of exports, right? Because by that, if you looked at that, you know, like um, we would, you know, it would still be like China would indeed be like um, America's most important kind of political ally, and that's not the case, right? So to answer, to look at the politics of it, I. It means looking further afield than, you know, kind of the economic intertwined, however economically intertwined the two societies are. And that, what we were trying to say in the discussion with Alex, and I think we did a reasonably good job with Alex Gorovich, was to say, you know, that it's Israel's identity as a victim, as a state which claims to be the state of the victims, that is important to understand because that is symmetrically on the opposite side is also the claim that is made for the Palestinians. And so you have two competing claims to victimhood that yeah. is the basis of politics in the conflict. That is what we were trying to get to. And I don't think, you know, kind of drawing attention to the fact that you have Israeli software in the computer that you work with or or even the arms trading. I mean, you know, I'd be happy to see Britain withdraw um uh, support for Israeli armaments and um, withdraw its kind of mili- any military support that it has. But at the same time, I don't think it's going to make a measurable impact on the Israeli war machine. And I don't think it's it's the most important or significant aspect of the political dynamics of the conflict, either there or with respect to Western states' relationship to Israel. Yeah, no, I mean, I think well put. Just on James Fodi's point, I mean, I guess my my sort of what it makes me think is whether the analysis that we gave is is actually dependent on like whether Israel or Palestine receives the most support in in the West. I don't think it is, or at least as far as I remember the discussion with Alex Gorovich, it's, it, I'm, I don't, I just don't really think it is because the, the central point that he was making was. You know, as you summarised earlier, Phil, there's there's no political violence that could lead to a solution on either side, and this is kind of independent of whether um, support for Israel is hegemonic amongst the, the you know the ruling elites in Britain, or whether it's kind of Palestinian support, or whether you know you get, kind of get annoyed by the left, and then you're like, oh, that you know viewing what you see next door is you know kind of um, the whole of the world, because I think you know he might or might not be right in his analysis but i don't think it undermines what alex gurovich was saying because the, the point still seems to me to be valid that that's why you have to take no side because there is no possible side that can can solve this in the sense of political violence leading to an um political outcome sorry violence yeah. leading to a political outcome yeah no that that's right i think you can dispute the extent of anti-semitism on the left you can dispute the extent to which pro-palestine 
how to to the extent to which left wing pro Palestine views are um, widespread, and you can dispute the extent to which the elite is pro Israeli or not, or etc. Those things are all kind of to a certain extent um, empirical matters, and but none of what the points that I made were made in reference to that. Like I'm not making these points about Israel and Palestine because I'm annoyed by left wingers. Although that said. But there, here I'll make address my point directly. Left-wing anti-Semitism is growing, I think. I don't think it's hegemog. I don't think all the people on the demonstration in London, the million people who are out there, are anti-Semitic. Certainly not in any subjective sense in terms of hating Jews. I don't think they're even objectively anti-Semitic. Most of them are probably just motivated by humanitarian concerns and have learned that Israel are these bad guys and doing all these bad things and these other people are these poor victims. It fits into contemporary victim culture, which is, by the way, in no means left-wing, certainly not anymore. Victim culture is universal across the West. Um, so the I, I think in, in that regard, you know, I'm not saying that there is widespread anti-Semitism where all these people are motivated by anti-Semitism. What I'm saying is that there's evidence of it growing and there's a reason why one should be concerned with anti-Semitism on the left, maybe even more so than anti-Semitism on the right, because it is so undermining of any universalist cause. And because, and this is a point which has been made by critics of anti-Semitism many times, is that there's a seductive appeal of anti-Semitism to the left, which racism does not have, because anti-Semitism has this element of punching up, right? Whereas racism is just punching down. Um, and that's why it's important to combat it and to be aware about it and to be concerned about it, um, regardless of whether we think it's, you know, 5% or 10% of the left, which is anti-Semitic or whatever, right? I'm not willing Sorry, to kind Alex, of quantify to, it myself. Not to, not to, I was going to say not to interrupt you, but I just obviously did. Um, but yeah, when you said like anti-Semitism is punching up, is that, was that deliberate? Is that... I think maybe that is kind of right in the sense of... No, but, the, but the, I mean, that's something that Bosch only... Stone makes because it's like racism is always about... The traditional racism, anti-black racism, is about excluding um, the kind of lower orders black people to make them more exploitable um, or once they're not useful for exploitation, to lock them up or whatever. That's kind of racism in the US. Right. Anti-Semitism always had this... You know, it was a tool used from above as a way of deflecting criticism of capitalism towards the towards a fetishistic object which is the jew who stands in for a capital right and so that because of that reason it's always had that had that role and had this appeal for the left now there's a, maybe a discussion to be had about the nature of anti-semitism today because i don't think anti-semitism on the left today works in the same way that it did in the past but i think that at least there's a consistent thread insofar as it it uh Israel and then and the Jews stand in for like these powerful people um, mm. who are uh, legitimate objects of of criticism. No, I mean of, I think of hatred, it, yeah, just not of criticism of hatred. Yeah, no, just the way that you put that, it, it just made me think like it. Obviously, that that's not irrelevant to the competing victim claims that you know is, is what Phil was talking through earlier with with Israel and Palestine. You know, they're not on the same. If they're if it's right that they are both kind of victims in one in one sense or constructed to be so, then they're clearly not on the same um, level in a left-wing analysis. But anyway, don't want to get too distracted. Um, but yeah. Well, just I, go ahead, Phil. Well, it's certainly to, I mean, I want to take issue with this Islamo-Gaushism thing um, because I was the one who used it and I'm happy to defend it. So, you know, sometimes, I mean, this is the conservative take is generally to see the level of um, 
Palestinian um, or pro-Palestinian feeling in Western societies such as it is, and it is growing, you know, on the left, but also more widely. Um, and it's seen as some, there's an imported issue to do with Muslim migration. And I don't think that's right. I think it's to do with changing attitudes in the wider society, which have generally shifted from being, as I said, the left has generally shifted over the period, over the course of the Cold War and into the era of the 1990s humanitarianism, the end of history, and so on. The left shifted, has you know, it's not, it's. Um, the, I think the the shift is now almost entirely complete. Um, and so you've had the shift from support for Israel to support for the Palestinians. And that is what I mean by Islamo-Gaushism in the sense that the um, the willingness to license expressions of Islamist anti-Semitism and Islamism in the West with respect to the Palestinian conflict doesn't come, it's not something which is uh, based on the strength of um, or intensity of Muslim politics in the West so much as the license that it's given by the wider liberal left. And the hegemony in support of, uh, of you know, Western support for Israel, it cracked a long time ago. Right, and this is really important because I think it um, it's the way in which the left allows itself to evade the question by thinking that the support, the Western support for Israel, is monolithic. It isn't. Right in the aftermath of the first Gulf War, the Americans lent heavily on Israel to participate in the peace process with um, Arafat's PLO, even to the extent of threatening to block and restrict arms shipments to Israel. So they're willing to um, exercise restraint on Israel, and it seems like they're seeking to do the same behind closed doors at the moment. Right? Now, it's not to say. Let me just uh, because I know people are going to object. Let me finish before they, you know, before you object and before they object. I'm not saying, you know, that the West is turning against Israel, but that there is less support, you know, kind of less outright and unmitigated support for Israel than I think many of our, um, than uh, these comments um, make the case to be. And like I said, that's not, um, you know, that's not even dealing with uh, the fact that you have um, open revolt um, within political institutions in the West, such as, as I already mentioned, the congressional staffers and uh, deep divisions in diplomatic services here in Britain, as well as in the US. So, you know, the, the tide is certainly shifting. And the reason the tide is shifting is nothing to do with the agency of the Palestinians. It's nothing to do with the potential of the Palestinians to, eman- you know, that their emancipation will... Um, completely transform regional order. Insofar as the tide is shifting in support of the Palestinians, it's because the Palestinians are powerless and because the Palestinians are victims. And that's well, it, why the tide it, is shifting. Isn't it also because the um, because of normalization between Israel and Arab states that the role that Israel plays as an outpost of American yes, it's less imperialism, it's less important? Yeah, indeed, um, it's less significant. And I think that's probably what Jacob Siegel was getting at in your discussion with him. Even if, you know, like his claims might have been overstated or outlandish, I mean, I think that's what he was kind of um, getting at. That's the dynamic he was I mean, getting I, at. I can already imagine the objections are going to be along the lines of, yeah, okay, maybe the US restrains Israel a bit, but it's still massively backing it, right? So this is, it's only able to restrain oh, it a sure. bit because it has massive, because it massively backs it. And yes, that is the case. Now, a lot of the, these points have been about, hey, how can you say, one, you're claiming that uh, the, the West doesn't support Israel because you see a bunch of leftists being pro-Palestine. No, that isn't true. But yeah, no, I mean, obviously, let me just go through the points. Obviously, I accept that, yeah. Yeah, but the points are independent. 
the other the other the other point is that even though the West might be fully behind Israel, which again there are cracks, but it's still largely behind Israel. Um, they haven't called for a sure. ceasefire. Um, you know, Starmer has been like, mm, I'm, I'm not going to call a ceasefire. You know, all this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah sure. Um, that doesn't mean that one should side with the Palestinians just because of just because of that fact, right? There were cases where I'm, I'm not drawing an analogy. I'm not saying they're the same. Da 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 da. da but I was happy, you know, when you, when the U.S. was fighting, when kind of the U.S.-led uh, powers were fighting against ISIS in Syria and Iraq, it was kind of like, yeah, I hope they kind of kill these fuckers, right? I hope they get, I hope they get rid of these fuckers. I'm not going to go out in the in the street cheering on U.S. Western intervention, but you're kind of like, yeah, I kind of hope they, I kind of hope they win, right? So it doesn't, I, there is no like lefty rule where you go, you have to oppose, uh, you know, the imperialist powers on every single point, no matter what it is. In fact, like that seems to be um, a recipe for the enemy, the my my the my the enemy. Jesus Christ, got that completely tangled. The enemy yeah. of your friend is your friend's enemy. And no, then, come on, enemy of your you friend. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I mean, I you know, you know I take so, so, so like that. That isn't the that isn't the basis on which you would lend the Pol- the Palestinian solidarity. Simply the fact that the Western support supports Israel. No, that's right. You know, there, there has to be a better argument for it than that. And I think there are some arguments, but I think they're incredibly weak nowadays because of the points that I've already made, that simply the Palestinians um, have almost Palestinian lost. politics is in no position to emancipate either themselves or the wider or transform the wider regional order. And that was the basis of Western support of Western leftist support for Palestinians in the past. And and, that, um, and this is why, just to take the last point that James Foley raises, is that he accuses us of odierism, you know, of kind of putting your hands in your ear and go, oh, how terrible. But sometimes that is the case. There's there's lots of horrible things in world politics where, you know, especially in a point where the left is extremely weak. So it's the entire the do. entirety, yeah, the entirety of world politics. So I don't um I mean I'd agree with that, but also I wanna um, on this point about uh, on James Foley's point about when we said we you know we didn't suggest when we said um, I mean we didn't say the Palestinians must overthrow Hamas first the point of or the argument there is that overthrowing it's not to say obviously it would be absurd to expect Palestinians while they're being bombed um, by is by Israel and um, in Gaza and being kind of um, thrust around. Um, displaced population as a result of the ground invasion, what have you, that they have to attack Hamas. But the point being a very basic one, and one which I think must be the absolute, you know, which would be the sine qua non for any kind of leftist um, approach to the question, is that the condition of Palestinian liberation is getting rid of Hamas. And anyone who doesn't see that or accept it um, doesn't have any kind of meaningful hope for Palestinian emancipation. And that would have been self-evident to anyone on the left 40, 50 years ago, um, that Palestinians' hopes lay in a secular in secular and democratic independent nationhood, not in um, support for, you know, not in kind of uh, rear guard support for Islamists because they happen to be militarily effective or because they happen to kill lots of Jews. Well, and, um, and, and one might flip the question around as well and say, you know, the condition for Israel's, for peace for Israel would also be some sort of secular coexistence with the Palestinians. I don't know what kind of institution. Yeah, that indeed. And that's the you know that's the that's the tragedy of the situation. Um, the 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 
the issue that uh, James Foley raises is that the Palestinians are effectively in a vice, which is a point that Alex Gurevich made himself. You know, if they don't, if they're violent, they get, you know, they get criticized. If they're violent in a different way, they get criticized. If they're non-violent, they also uh, they get, get all kind of massured and whatever. Sure, yes, yeah. they are in a they are in a vice. Yeah, that is right. But and that is idea. Mean- that is you know, idealism. And I, I mean, I suppose this is. I mean, okay. Actually, let me let us let us qualify that because when we say idealism. You know, the idealism comes from Adam Curtis's documentary series where he says kind of it leads to um, to powerlessness is the response to all the humanitarian horrors in the world. But we're making a political critique, whereas the, you know, the Palestinian solidarity movement in the West is based on humanitarian sympathy for Palestinian suffering, not on the agency of the Palestinians, their political agency to transform the political situation in the region, or it is, and it's in its support for Hamas, right? So, I mean, that's that's the kind you know, well, of well, it's de facto the... support for Hamas rather than explicit support for Hamas, and so to that extent, you know, we're not doing odirism, right? The odirism is, I think, the majority of the liberal humanitarian sentiment that call that leads leads people to flood into the streets in London in um, opposition to the Israeli military campaign. That seems to me much closer to adirism than what we're saying, because we're saying that the basis of a new politics has to accept certain aspects of the conflict. Um, and I, you know, I'd agree with Alex. I think it's um, you know anti-Semitism, the license that the left has given to anti-Semitism shouldn't be underestimated, and that doesn't, you know, that is. Um, you know that doesn't change the fact that um, you know, say, uh, particularly in the U.S., that Zionist associations um, were and um, uh, university, ad- you know, administrations were especially aggressive in cracking down on free speech that they saw as hostile or threatening. Or indeed, that-, that some Jews in the U.S. are like, "Oh, I'm afraid to leave my house now because of this," which is also kind of nonsense. It's you know the kind of inflated hysterical claims of identity well, maybe. politics. Maybe I mean the- you know I can maybe I mean it depends where you are I guess you know like um it's I think um, we would I think we would be fairly skeptical of those claims were it made by other identity groups. So I think well we maybe be- maybe but it depends where you are right like you know given what's happened in Paris right would people say no you know kind of not having armed guards around synagogues in Paris is excessive. I don't think it is. Um, you know, and there aren't armed guards around synagogues in um, New York. I mean, apparently there's, you know, police cars around the corner and so on, but it really depends to me where you are, right? Perhaps it's excessive in the US. I don't know. I'm not there. I don't think it's excessive in Paris. Um, And certainly like, you know, kind of Jewish schools telling their students not to wear kippers when they come into school in London. That doesn't seem to me to be excessive given what I've seen um, the videos, and I'm talking about videos, you know, not just random tweets on Twitter of the way people have been um, behaving in public and the things they've been saying, or the chants on the marches of Kaibar, Kaibar Jews. Um, you know, those things seem to me to be expressive of a genuine that we've recreated um, anti-Semitism in the West on a on a new basis. Yeah, and, um, and that point is valid, even if you think it's a small minority, right? Like yeah, I, I think, think that, that's, that's a, you know that's an important true. point. So I mean okay. I think and and just one final point on James Fellies, um and this is something we said you know well I said in the um, in the discussion with Alex Gorovich was you know Zionism is the ur victim identity it's the first kind of real political institutionalization of the idea of victim politics in in the modern era um, and so that and that it seems to be being replicated in the left support for the Palestinians as the victims of the victims. 
as um, Edward Said put it. So that is what the critique that we were trying to offer. All right. Um, that's enough of that. Have we had our fill? Um, not fill of fill, fill. Have we had our, have we had enough? Anyway, yes to, never, yes to, you've yes to both. Enough, you've never had enough <laughs> yes of to me. Both. No, you two guys never um, had enough of me. Okay, so um, moving on. We're going to move kind of relatively swiftly through a lot of these other ones. Um, again, apologies if you don't get mentioned or we, we've disregarded your point. Feel free to shout at us, send us a message and say, hey, why aren't you discussing this point? Uh, we will endeavor to do so in the future. Right. Um, starting from the most recent to the the, the least recent, uh, 375, Hyperliberalism, which was uh, an episode which we did on John Gray's recent book. Uh, Eli S. says, insofar as Gray associates hyperliberalism and unlimited self-definition with wokeness, I think he's out of his bloody mind. Wokeness and hyperliberalism are precisely not about unlimited self-definition. They are about attacking and smashing actually existing forms of association, self-definition, and self-determination, uh, and attacking them as backwards, oppressive remnants of a perceived old world. I think that's. I think there's some truth in that. I certainly think mm. the, um, the the right wingers who criticize wokeness criticize it in the same way they criticize postmodernism back in its apogee. That is to say, of oh, flexibility, you can be what you want one day to the other, you can choose your identity off the peg. Like that has, that is no longer the case. You know, things have moved on from that quite a bit and become much more kind of ossified and essentialized, um, you know, to, to the extent that the postmodernists of the 1980s would, I think, be a little bit shocked at the wokeness of the 2010s and 2020s. So um, mm. I think John Gray's probably wrong there. I think it's, it's not about unlimited self-definition, because in, in some ways, I think Eli's right that there is a, a rigidity of definitional categories that's imposed um, in the guise of getting rid of all of them. Um, but I do, I, I think, yeah, there is an element that, um, it makes me think of, um, there's a good piece by um, Eli Zaretsky uh, in Sidecar, which is like, you know, from a kind of psychoanalytical point of view, what is wokeness? Is it is it an individualistic or is it a collectivist idea? And actually, it's it's kind of both. You need to have the the individual is not completely because um, I think this, as you're you're right, Alex. This is the kind of in some ways the right wing analysis, like it's um, all these kind of or the conservative analysis. Sorry to be specific, um, that wokeness rejects all the all the established traditional identity categories and, you know, people can be whatever they want and that's too much. You know, you've got to accept some of the constraints in as, as to who you are. And Zaretsky says, well, that's not actually really correct. It is like, like all ideologies, which actually have some, some purchase in the real world. It has elements of both, or it recognizes that there is a relationship between the individual and the collective. So yeah, I mean, there are some problems with, with Gray's analysis, which are much more serious than that, but I, yeah, I think I think he's not out of his bloody mind, but I think he's probably not completely right either. Gray, that is. So just one more point on this episode. Lee Jones says, uh, John Gray's claim that contemporary states, quote-unquote, new leviathans, are engineers of the soul is ridiculous. And that's why Alex's repeated claim that contemporary liberal states are, all, are more totalitarian than the authoritarian states of the early 20th century is also so wrong. Even Russia and China have very little interest in molding a new kind of man. They only exert repressive control over their citizens, hoping they will remain politically passive. Not that they will become ubermenschen, new racial masters, or even Stakhanovites. The only meaning they have to offer is a crabbed nationalistic vision that is ultimately victimhood stories. You know, poor Mother Russia, bullied by evil colonial NATO, etc., etc. 
uh, it's precisely this ideological hollowness that means their counter-hegemonic challenge is so weak. Um, yeah, I, it's I, a great point. It's an excellent point. And obviously, he's right that you're wrong, Alex. Um, but it's also a very important point about the nature of that political authoritarianism. And also, I suspect, you know, why consumerism is so important, in fact, in, um, you know, kind of has an ideological role to play in Chinese and Russian society. Um, yeah. And the victimhood, the claims of victimhood. I mean, also, you know, in China, the idea of the century of humiliation, we're always being um, targeted by the evil imperialist US and what have you. You know, that's, I think it's on point. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, well, well said, Lee Jones. I mean, I would, I would add. Um, yeah, I think the this point about the, you know, are we living under totalitarian or authoritarian states now? I think this is a, or what is the relationship of contemporary states to um, authoritarianism and totalitarianism in the in the review of of this book that was published in Damage that I did? Like, I've, yeah, I mean, Gray gets quite close, but com- ultimately completely misses the point which is in Hobbes, which he summarizes in from chapter 30 in Leviathan, where Hobbes says um, it's a weak um, sovereign that has weak subjects. I think that is the that is the constraint on contemporary states, which is why they're not more, more um, totalitarian than the authoritarian states of the early 20th century, because of the character of the relationship between the ruled, the rulers and the ruled. And that doesn't, you know, that kind of, ability to become these leviathans is ultimately um not there they're, they're much weaker um i would say yeah. but anyway i make that point in the, in the review no which, but i think um, and yeah. it brings to mind a, a point that slava zizek has been making about a world of cynicism a coming coming world of cynicism but not in the terms just uh kind of socially that we've talked about before on this podcast but you know in terms of geopolitics that basically you have a what seems like a coming world of, of, of geopolitical competition where no one's making any universal secular claim about what their civilization or nation represents. Uh, and as a consequence, everyone is just making particular claims for themselves uh, based on generally ethnic grievance, victimhood, and so on, um, basically. And, and it's cynical in the sense, not just of not believing in some more glorious vision for the future, but also cynical and being deflective because they they realize that they don't have that much all for their citizens. So all they can feed them is a sort of grievance politics. There is no universalist secular claim about what the future is going to be like. But, and I, but if everybody is not making universalistic claims or and they're just making particularistic claims, isn't that in some ways the new universal condition of politics i don't know if zizek says that well, in, I mean, in that piece people, i, mean, I so imagine anti-universalism has become the new universal condition i think the, the only positive you could draw from that is that it would maybe return politics or re- return the division between those making universalist claims and those not to being an internal class one rather than being one done between states as was done in the cold war with you know two competing blocks making their universalistic pitches to 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 each other um, anyway, that's maybe some one for, for an episode in, in the future, maybe indeed with uh, Professor Zizek himself. Um, so uh, one on NATO and neutrality. Uh, this is the episode with Lily Lynch. A couple of interesting points um, from people in neutral or formerly neutral countries. So um, just some interesting points. Let me just read them out. Uh, Rico, uh, Riku, personally, from Finland says, uh, a few key developments for why Finland joined NATO. There was a media frenzy in the spring of 2022 that tied the war in Ukraine to the winter war 
which has been the key founding myth of the country of Finland since the 90s. Uh, a fear that Putin's master plan was actually the invasion of Finland. Yes, really. Uh, this was tied to the fear of being left alone in a winter war um, and created a sense of urgency. It has less to do with Atlantic solidarity or Ukraine itself. Secondly, as NATO membership gained popularity, uh, and as it is usually associated with the coalition party, the center-left government didn't want the next year's election to involve a discussion about the subject, so a quick application was useful. Um, so a bit of opportunism there. Uh, and then the third point is, in general, in Finland, these types of foreign policy questions are, however, rarely politicized and are made as a forced consensus, a certain code of omerta. Uh, no actual discussion took place. Only after the application, the question of U.S. bases, Finnish soldiers' roles in conflict, and so on, were actually discussed. So I think that's kind of interesting. It's a, it's like a, a combination of um, of use of of historic myth, of oppor political opportunism, and um, of post politics, of kind of clamping down on politics all at once. I think that's quite um, useful. Um, Pikibun raises a contrast between Finland and Sweden's politics of neutrality. In the past. Finland's neutrality was largely imposed on it by external forces, predominantly Russia, after gaining independence after the First World War. Finland was compelled to sign neutrality treaties. Sweden, meanwhile, began its policy of neutrality earlier, in the 19th century, in order to maneuver itself between the emerging regional powers such as Imperial Germany, Tsarist Russia, and Great Britain. These historical circumstances, which have produced the politics of neutrality, have shaped the way neutrality is perceived in the country's separate public spheres, and why the abandonment of them have looked very different. That's also um, useful. And finally, Christoph Island, um, rounding out our trio of, of, of neutral Europeans, um, writing in from Switzerland. Swiss neutrality is an interesting case study. A useful tool uh, during times of European empire waging war on land and to prevent the country from splitting during World War I, the actual implementation of neutrality has been more uh, tactical and inward-looking since 1945. Today, neutrality is primarily a battle cry of the right against any kind of global uh, e global integration, on kind of, especially on non-economic issues, um, but be it NATO, uh, EU, UN, or American-led sanctions. Um, for example, the Swiss traded with South Africa during apartheid um, was obviously done based on the principle of neutrality. Meanwhile, for the left, um, neutrality is paired up with the quote-unquote Swiss humanitarian tradition to argue for more money for NGOs, aid, and against selling arms. But um, this podcast, BungoCast, and similar local Swiss left-wing discussions in Switzerland about neutrality and about realism point to a deeper issue on the left, which is the lack of a foreign policy which goes beyond pacifism, vaguely pointing towards dysfunctional international bodies and lamenting civilian suffering. In the face of a weakened Western hegemony, and the absence of any global, non-tanky left-wing forces, realistic criticism of the U.S., and daydreams about neutrality as a political alternative outside of U.S. hegemony remain the only options. This sort of criticism of us, I guess, for, for you know, kind of daydreaming about neutrality or, or making realistic criticism of the U.S. because there's no, nothing else to, to offer. Um, though I would I say, don't say you know, I don't think it's a daydream. I mean, I think it's um, it might be a remote, maybe even a very you know remote, very unlikely prospect. But as uh, I think it is in the current circumstance, and particularly if Jijic is right about this kind of um, this new era of cynical civilizational geopolitics, it seems to me a very it seems to me the basis of a um, a foreign policy program. 
um, that would go beyond lamentation for humanitarian suffering, uh, supporting NGOs, and in the last instance, supporting a humanitarian intervention by NATO, which is what, you know, kind of um, the left's default posture on human rights has always led to, irrespective of what they thought they were doing or what they wanted to do. All right, moving on. Um, We have done two film episodes in this period that we're discussing now, Um, one on Buñuel's discreet charm of the bourgeoisie, and then another one before that on um, the Bader-Meinhof conflict. Um, These film episodes have been very popular, Um, received lots of comments and um, lots of interesting film suggestions in the comments too. We're not going to deal with any of the comments now, but uh, thank you for the recommendations. Um, We'll look them up. And um, I guess, guys, we're we're up for doing more film episodes, given that... uh, People are fans of them. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And particularly because TV is now so incredibly crap. Um, I mean, I tweeted some while back. Uh, there was a very good, um, surprisingly good, F- lengthy FT piece about how um, basically writers had this kind of golden age of independence from around the time of The Sopranos up until kind of, you know, Breaking Bad, roughly speaking. And then now the writers are back in the box. TV is going to be terrible again. And so I think there's lots to be said for talking about movies, um, talking about movies more. Yeah. Given there's stuff like, you know, The Irishman, which we didn't talk about, or even Killers of the Flower Moon, perhaps might be good. So, Yeah, I mean, and there were lots of great suggestions. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a bit of a shame given all those critical comments on previous episodes, we don't go through some of these and give ourselves a pat on the back. But um, no, I think it's a, I think films probably are, are a storytelling medium that, I'm just it just have to be more interesting as TV gets gets crapper. It's it's it is a bit of a zero sum game between between those two. Maybe we could discuss some novels or some comic books or some plays or some. I'm trying to think of other other media. You know, stretch ourselves. Maybe discuss other podcasts and have like they don't exist. Discussion so. on podcasts, yeah. podcasting on podcasting. Yeah, anyway, and then I'll, we could respond I'll, I'll, to people's criticisms of our podcast on other people's podcasts. There we go. There we go. Um, anyway, so yeah, we'll be looking uh, to, to do more of those. I'll be putting forward suggestions of obscure European art house films in a bid for continual un- un- unpopularity. Yeah, uh, just, should, just yeah. to be like, oh, I wanted to do this film, but uh, George and Phil said no. They wanted to do um, the, the first film Marvel which came to mind was, was <laughs> the latest Hollywood Frank. blockbuster. Yeah. The film Deja Vu. If you haven't seen this film, um, it's, it's a sci fi epic. Um, but you, you, yeah, anyway, watch that last night. It's genuinely terrible. Anyway, <laughs> excellent. Um, right. Um, got lots of episodes that you liked coming up, which we're going to deal with one last one that actually you kind of hated, which was three, six, three outsourcing the state. Lots of hate for outsourcing the state. Um, it, a lot of points along the similar lines, uh, LEA saying what a quizzical oversight in this episode to talk about outsourcing the state and levy your focus almost in exclusively on consultants and Lee Jones saying there was a fundamental confusion at work in this episode between outsourcing and the use of consultancies. They are related, but distinct consultancies can be used to outsource decision-making or set up outsourced privatized services, but they can also be used for other things. The outsourcing of decision-making also goes well beyond consultancies to the rise of quasi-private or independent regulators, arm's length bodies, courts, intergovernmental institutions, etc. A clear conceptual framing was needed. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, I think a bit of, I mean, I don't disagree with these comments, but I think they're maybe harping on, um, you know, kind of, uh, 
the title that we chose to frame the discussion of consultants, we were mainly focused on discussing um, Mazzucato's new work was kind of the, um, in addition, some of the stuff around it. So I, it was, uh, I think it was legitimate for us to focus on consultants. We by no means wish to suggest that this was the only form that this takes. And I think we, I mean, I think we qualified that um, in the discussion itself. Um, so, I mean, I think, you know, it was, uh, we were looking for a way to kind of, um, frame the reliance on consultants without suggesting that it was the entirety of the picture. Um, and don't worry, Lee, we'll set up a um, an independent inquiry to investigate how this, this could have happened. Um, and right. we'll, we'll hire some consultants to we'll, yeah, staff it. Exactly. Maybe if, if you want to be on it, Lee, maybe on the independent inquiry, so, you know, as a consultant, so. Right. Or just get an AI, an AI Lee Jones um, to, Couldn't to tell the difference anyway. Decisions. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, right. Breezing through these last couple of ones. Thank you for sticking with us. Um, again, apologies if we haven't dealt with your comment or maybe your comments coming up. So stick around. Uh, 362, Cory Doctorow, um, where we did uh, this episode, Life Doesn't Have to Suck, Life Doesn't Have to Suck, um, where I think a lot of the discussion, quite interesting, was about whether to socialize social media or not. I mean, whether you should have that as a political objective or do as Cory Doctorow recommends and try to break up the monopolies. Jeffrey Martin says, the notion of socializing social media after three years in which people were censored or even unpersoned for taking, uh, excuse me, for talking about COVID health data and treatment is or should be a non-starter. That is to say, you don't want to give government control of social media instead of these private monopolies because that'll be terrible. Cody, on the other hand, says, I'm skeptical of the rentier label for big tech firms because it doesn't capture how user attention and experience is commodified. The pressures to turn user eyeballs into profits wouldn't go away if big firm, excuse me, if big tech firms were split up. So the question becomes: What are the business models going to be? Are the new interoperable mini Facebooks and mini Googles going to charge users directly, or compete on how much value they can extract from user attention through advertising? If the former, you're limiting access based on who can pay. If the latter, then you just have a more dispersed and maybe harder to regulate version of the predation from platforms that we currently have today. So I think, you know, kind of good points on both in, in, in kind of pointing in opposite directions, but the pitfalls, both of the kind of break them up model and the, the you know, take them over model. I think Cody's Cody's point is right. I'd um, I would uh, disagree a bit with Jeffrey Martin because I think the issue was, um, you know, there was you know, the the nexus between state, uh, the executive arm of the state during lockdown, security agencies and social media platforms was so integrated. And, you know, the famous kind of revolving door that is talked about with respect between the military industrial complex and the US government applies, I think, just as much now to Silicon Valley social media as it does to the old kind of arms companies. Um, so what I would... Um, what I would say is there, I think, you know, the, that still, it doesn't kind of address the question, right? Because the question is, the state is already there. I mean, this was what Matt Taby's kind of exposure showed with respect to lockdown. The fact that they were making specific requests for certain people to be, their voices to be cancelled on social media during the height of the COVID pandemic. And so given that, there doesn't seem to me to be an argument against greater democratic control. 
obviously, you know, the um, what form or what type of uh, how that democratic control looks is not an easy question to answer. But the fact that people were unpersoned um, and censored and so on doesn't seem to be an argument against um, greater public authority, because the point is the authority is already there. It's just not democratic. It's the and executive it's not transparent. The and yeah, it's exactly, not yeah. it's not open. Yeah. All right. Um, moving on to the last couple of ones of these. Episode 361 was um, my chat with Benjamin Studebaker, A Nightmare on the Brains of the Living. This episode was really popular. You guys really liked this. Uh, there's an interesting discussion on there between Yonis Kiratsis, Michael, and Côte de Fromage about Studebaker's call to abandon historical analogies about whether we should um, stop thinking in terms of references to the past or whether that's completely unavoidable. Um, Roman says, is it really possible to come up with something completely new? The Enlightenment project of a society based on rational thought rather than superstition still has to be the foundation for a new and improved political and economic system that can replace what we have today. Um, I don't think we can get into that in in, in much detail, but um, maybe worth consider- considering maybe doing an episode on, on historical analogies and their uses and misuses, because you know, we're constantly going, oh, it's actually 1848. No, it's actually Weimar Germany. No, it's actually, you know, 1970s Britain, or it's actually blah, blah, blah. And maybe that's distracting us from in our actually mostly quite unique situation. Um, there's one long comment I'm going to read in reference to Apollo Gets High, episode 359, which was the episode on, with Benjamin Fong about his book. It's a very good book on, on drugs. Um, Richard R. makes a really interesting kind of personal comment, which I wanted to read out. I'm a drug and alcohol counselor who lives in a state that decriminalized all drugs very recently, so I have some thoughts. I think Phil is right about marijuana, though notably the market has split almost completely since legalization on the West Coast between the medicinal market, that is CBD, and the recreational market, that is to say THC. Not sure if Fong covers this, but it's a considerable problem and one that few people seem to be talking about unless they are medical marijuana users. I have epilepsy, and for a while there, the drugs I bought from the street read suburban parking lots, could both treat my epilepsy and get me high. Now these have taken on completely different roles. Because CBD and THC act on the same receptors, they're thought of as competitors in the sense that there's no reason to do both. In fact, the ever more refined and pure THC is leading to psychotic breaks as people consume quantities of THC even Bob Marley couldn't have imagined. Yes, these weed overdoses are real. Thus, the removal of CBD from the recreational market has meant the removal of a modulating dimension of marijuana as it was consumed for thousands of years previously. I think this reflects an acceleration in American culture and political economy, started by the neoliberal turn, but definitely not modulated by the end of the end of history, which is simply pure disassociation into individual fantasy. Meth and fentanyl are cheap, but weed has an item for every price point. If you ask marijuana sellers, they'll tell you there's a cannabinoid item for every possible mood. And while meth can cut either way between atomization or sociality, and fentanyl is almost purely antisocial and can lead to a night of just sitting there blissed out about nothing, you can smoke weed completely on your own and still just be barely associated with reality enough to watch movies, play video games, and order Grubhub. Tweakers and junkies are unpredictable consumers. Stoners are increasingly hitting literally insane levels of weed consumption, but until they get there, they will predictably consume snacks and media all day. Um, I think that's interesting and, and um, a, a worthwhile point against the libertarian mm. case for drug liberalization entirely, um, absent other social changes or institutional changes um, to provide support and, and push people towards um, using less drugs. Um, because mm. I think the, 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 
I think we'd probably swing wildly between prohibitionist and liberation and you know uh, liberalization moments, and neither is is satisfactory. Um, neither takes so, the social question yeah. seriously. I have a brief uh, kind of addendum, if I may, Alex, um, on um, Ben Fong's kind of book because I thought what we what came to me kind of afterwards, um, and it's partly in response to this comment as well, is that I think the solution um, to the conundrum of the drug war is kind of presented essentially in the talk that we had with Ben, which is, you know, so the problem, I think, well, the problem you can see put this way is, you know, kind of to end the insanity of the war on drugs um, without um, and without uh, endorsing them effectively, you know, kind of culturally and politically as um, the solution to kind of life sills or in encouraging, um, culturally encouraging drug consumption. And I think, you know, part of the way you can do that is by taking on Ben's point, where he says that people do these things just to get by. They're not they're not having fun, you know. So that was the way in which the drug war, you know, I remember the drug war from the from my early teens was um, drugs are very dangerous. They're great fun, but they lure you into a kind of a very dangerous world. That was the way the kind of anti-drug propaganda was presented. Um Whereas, you know, kind of, I think Ben has the, you know, has presented us with the answer, the very fact that people don't even enjoy them, they just use them for the, just to kind of function in lives that are so atomized and so desperate or impoverished and so difficult, um, gives us the answer, you know, that the solution is kind of stated right there, that you don't do, don't do drugs because, um, Nobody's having a good time on them, but also that, um, you know, we need to uh, create a society in which people don't need drugs just to function. Yeah. So I thought it was, uh, you know, I thought there was even more to be said, basically, in the aftermath of our chat with Ben than we did at the time. Yeah, well, but they are. Yeah, no, I mean, but I think so. Sorry, I don't want to self-promote too much, but the review of, of Ben's book in Sublation that I did made, I think kind of basically made that point with, you know, Drugs are fun under certain conditions, but they're not a solution. And that is that is the you know the position that you have to be able to to take. The kind of I think you know it also made me think, Alex, of, of when we went to California and went to the um, kind of Apple store of, of weed. I can't remember what it's called now, yeah, but that, that is yeah. the, the, no not not the dispensary, but it was called like Magic men but it wasn't called magic men it was called something like that our californian listeners will might have been know. too high i don't know you might have misremembered this but anyway go on um quite possibly um but yeah so that's that's the the kind of i think that's one potential future is the kind is like basically resolving it into um a a, a, a sl not prohibited but um tightly controlled and kind of not glamorous but like very tech savvy kind of you know i'm just going to tweak my my performance um through through using little bits of, of weed anyway i think um yeah i, I agree i think it's a very a, a really um yeah a really good book and i think our discussion was was good we ended up disagreeing on what was the most um representative drug Maybe we'll come back to this in in a few yeah. years and we, and see if we still agree with our conclusions. No, no, a lot, a lot more, a lot more to be discussed there. Um, we're going to leave you here. We're recording this on a Friday, um, so I hope I wish George and Phil a, a very sociable 
um, weekend um, with with fellow human beings uh, in close proximity, um, yeah, sharing no life and experience together. Um, all the Happily good stuff. No worries about that. And uh, to our listeners too, Alex. And to our, to our listeners too, too. Very importantly, um, I just want to give a shout out. There's loads of episodes we didn't cover. Apologies again. We left this one really too long um, between episodes. We're going to try to do them a little bit more frequently in, in the future and um, do them a little bit differently. So keep an eye out for that maybe in the new year. Um, there's lots of stuff I could highlight from episodes which we did with uh, Jason Miles, which you really like, Sean Sayers. Um, there's the episode on Australia and New Zealand. You guys really like that. There's a really informed discussion on Patreon going on there um, about references about why Argentina, or rather why Australia prospered and not Argentina compared to New Zealand. Um, really interesting stuff there. I would encourage you, listener, to go check out that discussion if you haven't seen it. Maybe you don't log into Patreon. Maybe you just get it on your podcatcher app. But um, I would encourage you to go have a look at the discussion. Lots of smart stuff. I, um, even when they uh, disagree with us and call us assholes, I still think they're quite smart. So thanks, guys. Um, thank you for being with us. And uh, we will be back with another uh, Alpha Bonus Bonus in short order. Catch you soon. Bye-bye. <laughs>